fire is a lot of things. Hot, obviously, bright, destructive. But you don't always associate it with speed. And yet, in the right conditions, flames can rip through communities in an instant. That's exactly what happened on the Hawaiian island of Maui earlier this month. Strong winds, fueled in part by a hurricane churning way offshore, whipped up a wall of fire that torched the coastal town of Lahaina. Hawaii's governor says at one point, the flames were traveling one mile every minute. Both sides, to the left and the right, are on fire. It was going so fast, some people had no choice but to jump into the ocean. Many were helplessly standing in shallow water for hours, just watching their homes and businesses burn to the ground. Don't look at the fire, don't look. Look this way, this is good. There's barely any time to think in a situation like that. But after the flames have been extinguished and the relief workers move in, there's seemingly endless amounts of time for survivors to ask themselves, what is my life going to look like now? My guest this week is CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir. He's been all over Maui talking to those survivors about who and what was lost in the deadliest American wildfire in a century and why they want the rebuilding to happen on their terms. From CNN, this is one thing. I'm David Rind. Bill, where are you right now? David, we're actually driving back towards Lahaina. They've since opened the roads for the first time uh, recently, and so that's been a big relief. So we're going to head up there and see what we can see this afternoon. So we're talking on Wednesday. It's been over a week since the fires hit. And I I think by now a lot of people have seen some of the images, but you have witnessed some of this devastation up close firsthand. What what did you see? You know, I've heard every analogy from the Hiroshima blast zone to ground zero after 9-11. They fit, and depending on what your lens is, which direction you're looking on Front Street, it's just utter devastation. We're just pulling into Lahaina now, just getting our first glimpse at this town after hearing these nightmare stories. And it is worse than you can imagine. We actually took a boat into Lahaina the first time. It was really the only uh, way to get up there. And we didn't know if we could dock at the harbor because of so many sunken crafts, but we managed to, to put in. The sensory part of it you miss from television is the smell. There's so much sort of toxic chemicals that were incinerated there. And so you've got this smoky uh, chemical smell that hangs in the air. Right here, this is the first hotel in Hawaii, the Pioneer Hotel, Pioneer Theater. It's completely gone. And I just walked for about a block up to Front Street and so just to kind of get a, a scope of the devastation to check on this historic banyan tree. That's sort of the symbol, heart and soul of this community, 150-year-old majestic tree in the center of town. I was there looking at it. It looks like it survived and up walks a couple of residents, including Bill Weiland, who owns art galleries in beach towns around the world. Flames were shooting over the top, coming at. But he escaped on his Harley Davidson, and he says that if not for the motorcycle and his ability to go up on sidewalks and go around traffic, he might have been stuck with the crowd that was forced either to jump into the Pacific or maybe be burned alive in their cars. That's Mm. where a lot of the casualties were trying to evacuate 
in that log jam. And there's nowhere to go. You're pinned between just the pinned, and that's fire what happened. And the ocean. That's what happened to all the people. I think is all those cars that were sitting waiting for someone to move in front of them. No one was moving anywhere. You were you were dead in the water. I stayed up till two in the morning watching, because I knew we went and uh, and met with a, a local woman named Brenda. Her her husband's mother, 83 year old mother, lived in Lahaina. And they're in this emotional limbo. He was one of the first, her husband was one of the first people to go give a DNA sample uh, because of course they fear the worst when they saw the pictures of where her house used to be. Has he accepted the, the idea that she's gone? Does he have to get confirmation before he can? I mean, the truth about it, we accepted it on the day that we saw that there's no house. But there, you never give up hope. But that story is being played out, you know, for hundreds of families uh, around the island. I, you know, my husband was saying, oh, I'm okay, okay. And I told him, no, you're not. And if people ask you, are you okay? You know, you're not. The word is, I'm concerned. I know they're still investigating what went on as the fires were approaching. But what, what do we know about the sirens that didn't go off? Like, were people given enough time to really make a plan? Right. Well, it's complicated. We've gotten various conflicting accounts as to what happened. There's a famous alarm system on Maui, but it's primarily for tsunamis. And so if you live in the Midwest and you hear an alarm, you think tornado. If you live in Maui and you hear an alarm, you probably think tsunami, which means run away from the ocean towards the hills, which in this case would have been more dangerous for folks. But at the same time, it would have been better than nothing. We've heard conflicting reports that some got text messages. There was a text message blast that went out earlier in the day about a pedestrian accident. And people are saying, if we got that one, why couldn't we have gotten one about wildfires, you know, hours later? Right. So it's a perfect storm of horrible situations, but it's a reckoning now. They're talking about what do we do going forward? Now, it's not enough just to have these alarms if we live in the age of, of these kinds of fires. We need drills and rallying points. You need to know where to go that's safe. I saw a couple of guys putting out hot spots with bottled water. Bottled water? Bottled water, yes. So there's uh, this, this fire, which is several miles from the, the Lahaina devastation you've seen so much of was only about 75% contained uh, overnight and the winds were kicking up. And so there are homes that are completely burned down next to those that survived. The survivors are training sprinklers on their, on their properties, oh. worried that one of these hot spots is gonna whip back up and the fire is gonna take off again. So there's a smoldering pit over there oh. and all it needs is a good wind to, to get it going. By the time we got there, it was already flaming. Really? Yeah. It was so a couple of guys saw some smoking Hot spots in the woods, they grab pallets of bottled water and just did bushwhacking through this incredibly dense brush. Oh man, you can feel the heat. To go pour bottled water on these flames. And they were just completely marveling that why aren't the firefighters from Oahu here? My mind is blown right now. Really? I don't even know what's going on. How is this even happening like this? This whole road should be blocked up. We should be blocked up right now and the firemen should just be all here. They had heard that, you know, there was a number of firefighters on that island who had four days off willing to come here and were told to stay away. We couldn't confirm that. But when you've got locals putting out fires 
with bottled water, that is a pretty stunning indication. A week after the initial disaster, that the cavalry really hasn't arrived yet. Bill, you were saying before the break how some people on Maui felt that even a week after the fires, it felt like the cavalry hadn't arrived yet to help. So what have people been doing then to fill the gaps and get relief to where it's needed? It's been one of the most inspiring things I've seen in terms of watching a community pull together. We just happened to run into a guy named Charlie Fleck uh, and his wife, Brittany. These are parents of working class. He's a canoe guide from Maui whose just heart was broken. We saw pictures of Lahaina. So he put out a plea on Facebook, started getting cash donations through Venmo, and was just driving around to the shelters, finding people who were affected and handing out cash. Wow. We were there as he did it for a few families, hundreds of dollars. And you can see them at first, they're confused and it turns to just, they melt into gratitude. What did you say to that family with the cash there? I just told them what we're doing, we're thinking about you. I said the whole nation's crying for you and we're trying to get you help right away. Yeah. And that I'm going to get the front of the cash. And I just told them, you know, so sorry and just, we're, we're trying to get you help, and uh, there's going to be more of it on the way. And, and, and they just did the look on the dad's face. Is, oh, my God. Oh, just trying to give him hope, you know? Like, we got we to gotta fulfill this, these promises and, in the need to get them that stuff. We, we need some more soldiers on the ground. But that wasn't enough for them. We just got on. We'll be there in a minute. And they realized that unless you were registered at the shelter in, in the center of Maui, you couldn't get any of the aid that was there. You couldn't get medicine or diapers for your kids. And so they said, we got to go out into the neighborhoods. We got to do grassroots relief. RG said when we're empty, go back, go back there and pick up some clothes well, this, to take to Lahaina Luna. And so they started filling trucks and calling friends. And they, before long, they had a caravan nine trucks long with a big donation from Lowe's. Hello. And then at a certain point, we finally reached this cul-de-sac, which I was blown away by the organization, the tents, the supplies. The guys are now lifting huge propane tanks off the backs of pickup trucks. There was food cooking. There was even musicians there to keep spirits high. Cold towel? Are you kidding? <laughs> that is Aloha hospitality. Yeah. Thank there you. There you go, man. Thank right there, you, over your neck. Keep you okay, nice and cool. And it was all being run by a guy named Archie Kalepa, who is a Hall of Fame waterman in Hawaii. Uh, he ran the lifeguards here for years. He sort of innovated the use of jet skis in ocean rescues. He's really respected in the community. This right here is a crime scene, and so what people don't understand is the government has to do due diligence before they start moving in. So it's, uh, and Archie is adamant about locals both having a say in how things are rebuilt and when to reopen. Tourism is our number one um, source of income. I would hope that our representatives, our politicians, our government would ask the people from here, when can we open? They should not be telling us, oh, we want to open six months from now. 
there's this real conflict right now between people who are in the unaffected parts of Maui who depend on the tourism industry. The messaging is don't come here. We need time to grieve and heal. And that was Archie's message as well. This is not the time to vacation here. And we'll let you know when we're ready. We are not going to be ready to allow people to see what we're living through in six months. Right. If that's their, if that's their main source of income, tourists coming in, but there's a group that says, hey, we, we need time here. That's really tough. It is really tough. And it's complicated, and it, as is the case in a lot of these disasters, by a few bad apples doing really insensitive, dumb stuff. Like, we were with a, a group of volunteers who were loading up boats full of donations on a boat dock in Maui. And, and there's sort of a, a bucket brigade handing fuel and medicine down to the boat. At the same time, a snorkel charter was pulling in, what? which had just taken tourists out to snorkel on the beach off of Lahaina, while, where they are looking for bodies. Oh my gosh. And there's a word in, in Hawaiian, pono, which means righteous harmony, both with your neighbors and the, the land and the nature around you. And this woman, uh, Grace Hurt, who was leading one of these recovery efforts, she looked at that boat, she goes, that is not Pono. Don't talk to them. We have nothing to do with them. And for context, you have to understand, you know, ever since Captain Cook was the first person to sail into Hawaii, you know, generations ago, the famous British explorer, who then was greeted as a god, he and his men were greeted as gods, they wore out their welcome, tried to kidnap the king of Hawaii, and he was stabbed to death in the surf off the big island. And ever since then, through colonialism, through statehood and the tourism boom here, the native Hawaiians have gotten sort of the short end of the deal when it comes to water rights, land rights. Mm. And now when they see a sacred place of theirs like Lahaina Town burned to the ground and there are real estate speculators calling them, uh, trying to buy land, you can't blame Wait, them. People are trying to buy their land while they're still out looking for bodies? Yes, yes. There are, I've gotten numerous reports of uh, real estate speculators calling up, inquiring if the family wanted to sell wow. as they're looking for loved ones. And it's deeply offensive. There is a number of uh, local social media influencers who are trying to get names of people when they call, get a list together. The state attorney general is involved in this. Um, officials from the governor's office on down have heard of this and want to intervene. There are plenty of lawyers in Lahaina Town. They're ready to protect people from you know, making a bad decision. But again, this is just sort of a new chapter for people who feel like their islands were taken from them. And now when their neighbors, you know, this is a place where a lot of your neighbors might be billionaires or rock stars. And they just, other than, you know, making appearance at shelters or whatnot, they're saying, why don't they let us set up, you know, temporary housing on their land? They have thousands of acres. What, you know, where is the neighborhood aloha that we give to everybody who comes here? Where is that for us? Can you describe the neighborhood we were just in, uh, the folks who live in, the, in these neighborhoods and, and how is, they fit in the community? This is the real Hawaiian people up here. These are the, the, the generations that go back to the beginning of Hawaiian time here. I mean, that's is as Hawaiian as it gets up in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that need it most. Even though their homes aren't burned down, it's... They needed it bef help before they anyway. Needed, yeah, they need more help than we can imagine. It's, it's just and a yeah. shame. We, it's so easy. We go, hey, high Regency, go check in. You got a room, pool, get these kids.
So between tourists that are insensitive like that, between sort of vulture real estate speculators calling families who still don't have confirmation of loved ones, has really created uh, some hurt feelings, and it's stretching the limits of aloha uh, for people. And there is no easy answer. Bill Weir there on Maui. Thanks so much. Stay safe. Thank you, David. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paolo Ortiz and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer. And Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Special thanks this week to Avelio Contreras. And thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back next Sunday. Talk to you then. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com briefing. netsuite.com briefing.